0: John 6, beginning verse 22, this is God's holy and infallible word. The next day, this is after the walking on water, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, But because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Remember that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, was earlier in the chapter. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then we're going to skip ahead to verse 56. What happens in between is... There's some disagreement and grumbling among the Jews, which for John, the Jews means the religious leaders of the Jews. They're arguing, how can this be? Disagreeing? Jesus goes on, verse 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave two, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And this is a a pretty pretty powerful answer. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. That's our text this morning. So we've had a similar pattern in the last two chapters. Chapter 5 started out with a miracle, the healing at the pool, and then this very long discourse by Jesus. Chapter 6 starts out with two miracles. And then again, a long discourse by Jesus. And we didn't even read it all. This one was actually a sermon of sorts. Did you catch that? He did this teaching in a synagogue, verse 59. This was a sermon. So far in this chapter, we saw how the feeding of the 5,000 shows us how jesus fills the hungry soul the walking on water miracle shows us how it's all about the presence of jesus in our lives it's not so much what he gives us or brings us it's about him with us and we saw how nothing can separate us from his presence we saw how his presence stills the storm and takes away our fears. We saw how his presence ensures that we will make it to shore. I've learned, as I said a couple weeks ago, that with my wife Sarah in the boat, I'm going to be okay. You might not have a Sarah in your life. She's, she's with me, and I'll, I'll fight you for it if it comes to it. But you and I, we as believers, we have everything we need because we have the very presence of Jesus. We saw that in the walking on water. He'll bring you safely to the other side, whether it's bringing you to that ultimate shore one day or whether it's to the other side of a storm that you're going through right now. Now, today in our verses, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and, and we're going we're to circle around that idea this morning. We see first that the people are hungering for the way. They're searching for something. They don't even know what. Yeah, this is our first point. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear enough. Um, They don't even know what they're hungering for exactly. But there's something about Jesus that stirs in something in their souls. And the people, this is part of the group, part of the crowds of the feeding of the 5,000. Catch that at the beginning. Jesus walking on water happened at night with the disciples, so the crowds didn't see it. But in verse 22, they're puzzled. Because they figured out Jesus did not get in the boat with the disciples the evening before. They saw everyone get in the boat except Jesus. But then they noticed Jesus isn't around. And they're like, what in the world? Um, They find him in verse 25, and they're like, how in the world did you get to the other side of the lake? They find him on the other side of the lake, right? And remember, it's a big lake, 13 by 9 miles, see a galley. It's funny, it says Jesus answered. They might not have considered this an answer to their question because he doesn't tell them that he walked on water. That would be the answer. But what happens is it starts a conversation between him and the people. And we can look at these people, the crowd, in two different ways. And You know, I I read, when I study these passages, I read commentaries, people who comment on the Bible. And some Bible commentators see these people negatively. They were just looking for a miracle or for more food in their belly. They really weren't after Jesus and his presence. They just wanted to see him do some more tricks. Some of that might be true, but... I believe there's another way to look at these people. and It's to see them, I guess, in a more compassionate way, more searching, hungering, curious. And, and I think, when I think about us today, that these are two different ways that you and I can look at the crowds today. People who are outside the church, people who don't know Jesus, like really know him one tendency among committed christians is to be suspicious to put up high thick walls in the church to question people's motives to expect the worst i don't think that should be the church's approach i believe jesus shows patience to these people they ask him questions he does not turn them away he doesn't say get out of here You don't really love me anyway. He engages them. He answers their questions. He teaches them. And I I really believe that this is the approach that we as God's people need. I think of people who come into our doors on a Sunday maybe with very little church background. People who might connect with one of our many ministries who don't have the faith foundations that many of us do. Think of people at your workplace or your neighborhood who show no evidence of faith. And sometimes I wonder if God's people don't have a too harsh approach. Sometimes I wonder if we're too harsh when we look at people who we think aren't committed Christians. But the crowds here are not necessarily straight out of the enemy and evil. I think sometimes Christians can have a harsh approach today because we do see our enemy, Satan, at work and in our culture. We're seeing changing definitions of marriage. We see the truth of God as creator derided by agnostics and atheists. We see church attendance around the country down. And trends like that can put us on edge. It can make us put up our dukes, ready to rumble and defend Jesus in what we believe. And I think we should be ready to defend the faith. I don't think we should cozy up to the culture. We need the armor of Christ like never before to be strong because there is a battle being waged today. However, When dealing with people God brings our way, or somehow into the reach of the church, we are called to be very patient, very open, very ready to teach. That's how I see Jesus approaching these people who are hungry. And as I said, I don't even think they know what they're looking for. And I think that's often the case with people who are curious about the faith, about Jesus. But there's a hunger maybe in fact you're here this morning and that's what's going on with you and your soul about the faith and about jesus and about the people of god us all gathering here like this maybe there's a hungering a searching a wondering well what jesus does in the hungering is he gives the recipe He gives us the recipe. And that's our second point this morning. Jesus gives the recipe, and it's faith in him. Jesus says, it's me. I am the bread of life. I fill you up. I'm the answer. It's not so much what I do, what I provide. It's not so much the signs and the miracles. It's what it all points to, and it's me, myself. Verse 27 Eternal life is from the Son of Man. Verse 29, believe in the one God has sent. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 41, I have come down from heaven. Verse 47, he who believes in me has eternal life. Jesus says he came down from heaven, and he also says that the Father sent him from there, and that tells us that the recipe was cooked up, up there in heaven originally. And we call that the Council of Redemption. We read in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, that's Christ Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you remember back a few sermons, in the beginning in John 1 refers to eternity. In eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit planned out how people would be saved from their sin. And God did this because sin is the ultimate cause of the searching and the hungering. Sin creates separation from God and we are only fed, fulfilled, found when we are with God and in a relationship with him. The recipe for a people starving in sin involved the creation of the universe and earth, the calling of a people and ascending of a savior the whole old testament is a preparation for that sending of jesus jesus refers back to the old testament a couple of times in our verses the prophets foretold all of this in the desert wanderings the manna god provided his people that foreshadowed it and then jesus came to live and die and arise again to be the final the ultimate ingredient. Verse 28 and 29 tell us how we get connected to that eternal plan that has been worked out in history. He says, I am the bread of life. How do we receive the bread of life? The people say, in verse 28... What must we do to do the work God requires? So you see, from their perspective, they thought that human activity was somehow very important to salvation. Another simpler way to put their question is just, what must I do to be saved? That's what they're saying. What must I do to be saved? They assume in their question that there's something they got to do. What must we do to do the works God requires? And most people assume most of the time they got to do something. Every stripe of religion out there that is not Christian has suggested a recipe to life that involves us doing certain right stuff as the key to the hungering of people in life. But verse 29 comes in and tells us a unique way among all of the ways imagined and thought up throughout history. This is the work of God that you believe on him who he has sent. So Jesus is saying, this is the work that God requires. This is the quote-unquote work. Not work, really, but belief. It reminds us of what the Philippian jailer said in Acts 16.31. He said, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on Jesus and be saved. The recipe is to accept the work already done. The work of Jesus Christ. The recipe involves giving up your doings and religious strivings and accept Jesus. As one pastor put it, his name is A.W. Pink, we have to renounce our own work and trust the work of another. And the only way to do that is to first of all be convinced that our own work is worthless. Which, on the surface, kind of sounds like a harsh, degrading thing to say. I'm. Are you saying I'm worthless? You know, I could see people saying that. No, that your own work is worthless, and and it is difficult. And I think that is part of what made many people leave. Many people rejected what Jesus said. This is a hard teaching. The thing is, you have to come to a real point of humility giving up of what you bring to the table. It's tough for people. I want to describe to you a way of thinking about this that might help. So, there are some things I'd like to think I'm decently good at in life. There are other things that I'm not good at. Some of that, of what we're good at and what we're not, has to do with our sort of God-given abilities, but some of it just has to do with education and training and experience or lack of it in certain years. I'll tell you something I have no training in and no experience. Stuff related to construction. What's being done at that main entrance? I have no clue what's going on. I've kind of looked in the hole a couple times. Todd Lindemolder from our own church is involved, doing a lot of the preparatory work. Side note, in the bulletin, it clarifies that power outage lesson. He had nothing to do with the construction here. The timing was incredible, though. We just had the power off for a few days. ComEd, I think the whole block was out. Looked in the hole a couple times. Todd's been here a few days this week. I asked him about a couple things, where things were at, and As I asked him, I realized I didn't even have the vocabulary to ask an appropriate question. That's how pitiful I am. That's how little I know about construction. I sort of asked, and Todd was very gracious. He gave me an answer. He knows I'm clueless about this stuff. Take it a step further, put me out there, ask me to do anything related to that project. It's going to turn out very badly, very quickly. Whatever work I do would be completely and totally worthless. Knowing all of that, I gladly renounce my own work as worthless, and I trust the work of another, Todd in this case, and others who are going to be involved. That is the recipe, my friends, for a hungering soul. When we realize that all our doings, spiritually speaking, are faulty, all our efforts fall short of God's demands, all our righteousness is as filthy rags, but thankfully there is another, capital A, whose work is worthy, Jesus, the bread of life. God says, I've provided the manna in the wilderness of this life, just pick it up. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. God's word doesn't just tell us the recipe. But finally this morning, God's word graciously invites you and me to partake of Jesus. Jesus invites us in verses 54 and 56. And he says, whoever eats my bread and eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. Remains in me and I in him. Verse 57 The one who feeds on me will live because of me. We're on the last point. They wondered about this question eating is, you know, all this. It sounds kind of like communion language. This is figurative language for accepting Jesus. This is figurative language for renouncing our own will and efforts and acknowledging him as the only answer. And in verses 60 and following, we find responses to this invitation. When he says, whoever does this, he's got life. We find the responses in that last section. There are really only two options. Partake of the bread of life or refuse him. Many turned away. And after that happened, Jesus asked the twelve, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And then you look at that answer and I, I want to read it again. Peter's answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. If you read and own those verses, if you give that response, you can be assured that you belong to Jesus this morning. I mentioned how Jesus approaches these people with patience and with love, inviting them to partake. And he does the same with you and me, thankfully, too, because we're not always quick to get it. And God extends... The gracious invitation again to each one of us personally. Partake of Jesus, the bread of life. Are you hungering? Are you searching? Jesus gives the recipe. Believe, receive me, partake, enjoy, have life. Amen.